0: And the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. One of the big themes this week and next week, and in fact, right through John's Gospel, is love. But love is, well, it's a very interesting word, isn't it? For example, my daughter loves margarita pizza a little nervous about this picture of the margarita pizza because I'm not sure it would meet her high standards. She is an expert on margarita pizzas. She knows where to buy the best ones and she is a harsh critic of what is offered in the name of margarita pizzas in too many places. She loves the flavours, she loves the texture and she loves the combination of all of that and she does not like it when people muck around with that. So what or who do you love? You might like to just talk to your neighbour for a moment. What or who do you love? Oh, I'm not going to ask you what or who you loved, but I am going to talk about the kind of love that Rebecca feels towards margarita pizzas, and it's intense. But when I use the word in that way, I'm talking about how that kind of pizza and only that kind of pizza makes her feel. She feels love when she eats that pizza. It's all about her and how she feels, which is okay when you're talking about pizza. But too often, when we talk about loving somebody else, we're talking about exactly the same kind of love. We can see that when we watch Hollywood movies, when we get to the wedding bit and we listen to their, what are called, vows. And too often those vows are simply statements of, when I am with you... I feel a whole complex layer of emotions and I really like it and I want this to last forever. So I'm going to stay with you forever so that I can feel like this. And that is one understanding of love. Is it the kind of love that God feels for us? My daughter also loves making margarita pizza. Yes, it makes her feel good because she knows that when that pizza is made it will be made properly to her high standards and she will love eating it. But she also puts a lot of love into that pizza as she makes it. As she makes the dough, yes she makes the dough. And as she makes the sauce, she makes her own sauce, and as she carefully constructs it with care and love. If that pizza were sentient, it would know that it was loved. That is the kind of love, on a much grander scale, scale that Paul is talking about in his letters. It is much more than love for the self, it is love for the other, commitment to the other. So that when the complex layers of emotions change, the commitment carries on. So, what kind of love were you talking about when you talked about loving something or someone? Was it the love that you makes you feel good, or the love, a commitment to the other thing. Have a quick chat about that. So most of the time, in fact, this love is not an either-or, but a both-and, and and we need to remember that. As I said, one of the big things in John's Gospel is love. It's there in the background of today's readings. It's front and center in next week's readings as we carry on through chapter 15. It's there in 1 John, the reading we heard from the letter of John, uh, and Uh, It's right at the beginning of the Gospel as well in the statement God so loved the world, John 3.16. So what kind of love is John talking about in the Gospel and in the letters? Well, probably a bit of both, really. I mean, God did feel joy and love as God created. But it wasn't just about how God felt. The love talked about here is God's ongoing love for the world, for all of creation and all who live in it, and God's ongoing loving work, so that all might flourish, it is a statement of God's commitment to this world. God so loved the world. And John is suggesting that we are invited to be part of this ongoing loving work. So, in light of that, let's have a look at today's reading from John and from Acts. These are not kiwi fruit. However, one of the great joys of uh, being in this parish, especially at the beginning, was uh, having Trevor Southey join me whenever I took services at Fraser Manor. And he always did the talk. And he would always talk about what was happening on his kiwi fruit farm, his little orchard. And uh, And I learned a lot about Kiwi fruit uh, each time we went. And sadly, he's not able to do that anymore. He talked about the hard times when he had to cut all his vines out because of PSA. He talked about the care he took grafting the new vines onto the old stumps, the care and love. In making sure that there is always the right amount of dry matter on the ground. The care and love he took, making sure that there were the right number of leaves per fruit. And pruning to ensure that there would be a maximum harvest, both maximum in quantity, but more importantly, maximum in quantity. He talked about his joy, and his love working on those vines, but also the careful and loving way he cared for them. If those vines were sentient, they would know that they are loved. He pruned those branches with the PSA. He pruned the branches that were too close. He pruned those that would not produce fruit. And they needed to be taken away, burnt, because if you just leave them lying around, they'll put down roots and start growing themselves with inferior fruit. So they were, they were got rid of. So all of those talks actually helped me hear what Jesus is talking about in today's uh, reading, where he talks about the vine and the branches. He being the vine, we bring the branches. And in his case, he was talking about grapes. Well, we assume he was talking about grapes. He's definitely not talking about kiwi fruit. Which is a great image for us, I think. It suggests that we have been lovingly grafted into the story of God's ongoing love for commitment to this world and all who live into it, live in it. The question that Jesus is asking is, do we choose to be part of that? passage we've just listened to from John's Gospel is part of Jesus' farewell talk to the disciples. Everything is about to change. His overriding concern in everything he says in this talk is pastoral. These are words of comfort. Too often when we read these words, we hear them as words of judgment. So we didn't hear talk about it from that point of view This Tuesday But we certainly have on other Tuesdays When we have our conversation about the gospel People saying this is so judgmental But in fact, Jesus' intention here was pastoral And John's intention in including these words And they were included in the second draft of his gospel Because if you read the last talk You get to the end of chapter 14 And he says, right, we're off And then he carries on for another three chapters, chatting. And then in chapter 18, they're off. So those three chapters, 15, 16, 17, were added later. John went, we need more here, more pastoral concern. So these are pastoral words. We have to remember that when we read them. And in these words, Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Or a lot of translations have abide in me. And I will abide in you. What does it mean to abide or remain? One of the commentaries I read using the, the piece just before this where Jesus said, There are many rooms in my Father's house, for if it were not so I would not have told you says that's what it means to abide. It means that room has been made in the heart of God for all of us where we might deeply be at home. Room has been made in the heart of God where we might deeply be at home. And the invitation to then is to, for us to make room in our heart As individuals and as a community where God might deeply be at home with us. It's a wonderful image, an image of us being deeply at home in God and God being deeply at home in us. And in offering that, Jesus then uses the image of the vine, which is a really nice image. And very different from how Luke and Paul talk about this. They talk about the empowering spirit, which comes from above and beyond and comes in from outside and kind of zeuses us up, able to do stuff. But this image, this image is about the life of God welling up from beneath and within, It's a much more gentle image. It's a much more relational image of God's life mingling with our life. The question then is how do we intentionally make room for God in our heart? How do we pay attention to that? How do we allow that welling up from beneath and within to occur within us? This image is rooted in life-giving relationship. As we allow that life to well up from within and beneath, we become a people of love, not for ourselves, not for for how it makes us feel, but an outgoing love, a love for all of creation. And that's not always an easy process. As Jesus warns, it involves being pruned, pruned of our attitudes, pruned of our assumptions, pruned of our prejudices, which takes us to our reading from Acts, Philip and the Ethiopian. So what do we know about Philip? What do you know about Philip? Do you know anything about Philip? Apart from he had a chat to an Ethiopian? (laughs) Well, earlier in Acts, there was a bit of division in the early little church in Jerusalem between the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews who had become Christians. And so the disciples who were far too busy teaching to do what Jesus had taught them, which was to serve, it's a very interesting notion, Uh, they appointed some deacons to look after the Greek-speaking members of their church. One of them was Philip. One of them was Stephen. One of them was Philip. So from that we know that he is someone who spoke Greek and lived in the Greco-Roman world. He was a Jew, but he came out of that world. And that means he saw the world through those eyes. Now that means that when he looked at that Ethiopian, within the Greco-Roman world, Ethiopian didn't necessarily mean he came from Ethiopia. It meant he came from somewhere down there, and that they looked different. How did they look different? They were darker. And in the Greco-Roman world, if you look darker, then you were inferior. You were less than. You were different. So as Philip looked at that Ethiopian, even though he was a wealthy Ethiopian, he still would have saw him as an inferior person. Not as important as him and people like him. So this is Philip coming to terms with what it means To preach the gospel to all the world. And Philip would have understood that to mean all the world to people like me, important people, white people, whitish people. They're not white like us, but even so. The Ethiopian also was a eunuch. So there's a lot of debate around exactly what that meant. But in all likelihood, it meant that as a pre-adolescent male, he had been castrated. Now what really interested me about, I was trying to find some pictures, was how many of the pictures showed manly men with beards. And one of the things about a eunuch is, if you're castrated before puberty, you are not a manly man, because you don't have the testosterone. In fact, you're quite effeminate. You don't have beards and you're a little bit chubby, on the whole. You look different from other men. You stand out. And again, in the Greco-Roman world, such men were seen as not men, inferior. Male strength and virility were seen as very important. It was the pinnacle, kind of like our society today really. And so if you were a eunuch, you were less than again. So this eunuch is, well, doubly inferior, not white, not male, pushed all of Philip's Greco-Roman buttons. Now, in all likelihood, the Ethiopian was a Jew. At the time of the exile, the destruction of temple of the temple by the Babylonians, a whole group of people went down through Egypt and into uh, what we kind of Egypt and um, and some of the surrounding areas. And there are still communities of Jews down there today, and their worship patterns are very different from other Jewish communities. They are much more first temple in their style of worship. In fact, they set up their own temple down there at the time. So, uh, and, uh, and claimed lineage back to the high priests. So they were kind of seen as the, as the real deal in their own eyes. But because this man was a eunuch, it says he went up to Jerusalem to worship, but he could not enter the temple, because that's forbidden by Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So he could go into the outer courts, the courts of the Gentiles, But that was as close as he was allowed. So even from a Jewish point of view, this man is inferior. He is not allowed in. He's an outsider. And the Spirit drives Philip, well, invites Philip, to go and talk to him. This less than inferior, not man. And in the course of their conversation, Philip has his prejudices and assumptions pruned. He confronts his own reluctance to preach the gospel to all people, all people. And he has to confront his own prejudice and reluctance to have all people respond. Once the door is open, the eunuch does the rest. He takes his chance and he asks to be baptized. He asks to be grafted into the people of God as people explains it, as Philip explains it. And in doing so, he has his own assumptions pruned. Because as a Jew, he knows that he's an outsider. He knows that he may not enter the temple. He knows that even though through his mother he is a Jew, because he's a eunuch, he's not really a Jew. But in asking for baptism, he says, I can be a full member. I can belong. He embraces the idea that God loves him, takes delight in him, and actively loves him and includes him. He is grafted into the vine. So, I wonder, as we listen to these stories, the image of the vine and the branches, the story of Philip and the eunuch, Philip and the Ethiopian, I wonder what we hear. I wonder what these stories say to us. And I wonder how we might respond. So I invite you to have a quick conversation. What do you hear? And how do you respond?